well, well, we are continuing our series here with atheism. Uh, hey, don't forget to check us out on Skype at The Theology Pit. You can send me a message there. Also on uh, Facebook at The Theology Pit. Um, or go to SamsonStick.com and you can email me, Samson, at SamsonStick.com. Hi, this is John Hall. And this is Kathy Emmons. And we're from 101.5 Ward FM. And you've just fallen into the Theology Theology Pit. Pit. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Theology Pit. This is Theology out of Pittsburgh, and not to be confused with a bottomless pit, because you know what we say here. When you fall into a bottomless pit, you die of dehydration. I am, of course, your friendly neighborhood host and theologian, Samson Kovach, coming to you live from the suburbs of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Well, we have been discussing um, atheism and, you know, leading off with if atheists get the arguments for God's existence wrong, it's not their fault. It is our fault for not explaining it. Although, if you are an atheist that is putting forth a rebuttal for one of the arguments for God's existence, then, you know, don't be disingenuous by misrepresenting the argument. Represent it, okay? Uh, One of the arguments for God's existence is called the Kalam argument, okay? And it syllogistically goes like this. It is is the argument for uh, a concept of time. It's a concept of time argument. And it's basically that an infinite number of moments cannot be traversed, okay? So here's the first premise of it. Premise one, the series of events in time is a collection that's formed by adding one moment after another. Premise two. Okay, so we the, each premise, you know, it has to be true in order for the conclusion to be true. We talked about that in the last episode. So is premise one true? That a series of events in time is a collection that is formed by adding one moment after another. Okay, and if you need a definition of time, real quick, usually time is defi- uh, defined as a succession. Uh, uh, I always mix up succession and succession. Succession of moments um, that is indicated by change. All right, so some type of change has to occur, however minutely. And that gives us the sense of time. Okay, so these indications, these change indications, um, are, are what we're talking about here when we talk about moments, because we're using time language. All right, that's the first premise. Do you hold to that premise being true? That that's you know a, a, a general truth. I, I would say yes. If you have a problem with it, you have a problem with the syllogism. Premise number two: a collection formed by adding one moment after another, cannot be actually infinite. Okay? Um, There's a difference between things that are potentially infinite and things that are actually infinite. A potential infinite is adding one number in front of another number to increase its value by one. Okay? That could potentially go on into infinity into an infinity is defined as a, a a set of a mathematical equation that cannot be traversed so and it, it, it will never end that's a potential infinite an actual infinite is that the infinite 
that you are talking about already exists, nothing more can be added to it or taken away from it. Okay, It is an actual infinite. And we'll talk about whether or not actual infinites you know, uh, really exist. But potential infinites do exist from our experience. So, premise one is that a series of events in time is a collection that is formed by adding one moment after another. All right, premise two, a collection, this collection that's formed, uh, cannot be actually infinite. Okay, it can only be potentially infinite. So the conclusion is that the series of events or the moments in time cannot be actually infinite. Okay, if you agree with that, then you cannot agree with Carl Sagan's statement that the universe is all there is, all there was, and all there ever will be. Because that is a statement of actual infinite and not potential infinite. So it's not possible for time to infinitely exist in an actual infinite, which would mean that it stretches past and future. Okay, you cannot have an infinite past and an infinite future. That is not possible. Also, you cannot have an infinite past in time just by itself with no future. All right, those two things are not possible if the syllogism that I gave you for the Kalam argument holds true. The possibility, though, of an infinite stretching into the future, a potential infinite, is possible. Now, because of this, you don't want to go off on an ad hoc argument. You don't want to say, well, my presupposition is that the universe is an actual infinite that does exist, even if we can't really measure it. Therefore, those that syllogism is wrong. All right, that's, that's a, a, an ad hoc argument. You're bringing something else in uh, which namely is your presupposition to say that it's wrong. You, you can't say that you know premise one and premise two are correct, but I don't like the conclusion. It's not a matter of liking. It is, does it logically follow? If it logically follows, then it holds true. So, Big Bang cosmolo- cosmology theory, yeah, I'm going to mess all these words up because I'm not, I'm not a cosmologist I, and I'm not a cosmetologist either. I don't do makeup. Um, but people that do study this stuff, Alvin Plantinga, um, uh, William Lane Craig, they do some uh, you know, great work in this uh, area of, of time and cosmology and, and space. I, I would say William Lane Craig more on time. Alvin Plantinga, more on cosmology, you know, something that you should look at and look to um, if you want to get more into you know, that aspect of it. I'm just looking at the time aspect of it, of the Big Bang Theory. Now, Big Bang Theory basically says that there was a point where there was something that was there, okay? Now, what's interesting about that is that by them saying that, it violates this logic, okay? Because you can't have something potentially 
or actually eternally there, okay, you would have to have nothing. And this brings us to our basic philosophical question of why is there something rather than nothing? Now, I enjoy science books and I listen uh, to them uh, through Audible. I listen, uh, Audible is, is great because it's not just books. But and I don't want this to be a commercial for Audible. Um, but but you can also go through things what are called the great courses, and these are lectures by people in the top of their field. Um, a lecture that I listened to, and I'm, I'm just doing this off the top of my head, so I don't have his name in front of me. I don't have you know all this stuff. I, I probably should look it up for this podcast while I'm talking. But um, he was from uh, Carnegie. Um, University, and he's a. I think he was a geolo- He's a geologist, and what was great about um, you know listening to him and what he was talking about. Um, here it is. Uh, let me pull this up if if I can you know, pull it up without it uh, going into going into stuff. Anyways. Um, his was on the evolution uh, from a geological perspective, a geological standpoint. All right, so if you have this uh, you know, evolution in a theological standpoint, um, you have to address these particular issues. Okay, it um, is by uh, Professor Robert M. Hazen. Uh, great courses uh, in the history of science section, and it is the origin and evolution of Earth from the Big Bang to the future of human existence. Okay, and it was a very interesting one to listen to because in dealing with the something from nothing argument, um, there really wasn't anything. There was a lot of assumptions. Okay, that was made, and not only that, but all of the uh, elements that were in existence in this beginning period is what everything is made up of. So really, it's the evolution of order, not the evolution of creation, so to speak. It's it's not you know how these things um, you know formed, but how they uh, came together, I should say. Um, so you you started out with like the most basic, you know, uh, atomic structures, and then how? But but it's 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 with all of the stuff that already exists. He's assuming that all of this stuff already exists, and I I, I mean I found it fascinating. I really like to listen to, it, and I learned a couple things. Number one, that um, science in when it comes to uh, let's say touchy subjects, like this would be a touchy subject in science because you're talking about the possibility of a creator and the creationism, and then you you really start to get into um, people like that will immediately go to Ken Ham, who I'm not the biggest fan of. I'm not the biggest fan of Answers in Genesis. Um, I, I find him to be actually kind of a bad biblical scholar too. You know, his his debate with uh, Bill Nye, the pseudoscience guy, uh, was awful. I mean, I think that both Christians and um, you know atheistic uh, scientists were embarrassed by that uh, that exchange. Uh, it, it was almost like when um, uh, Kirk Cameron and um, Ray Comfort did that ABC debate years ago with what was called the Rational Response Squad. And 
it, it was an awful debate. Like it was just, it was it was sophomoric um, at best, and it had a national audience uh, on on you know existence of God, and it was it was truly pathetic. It really was. But something else that I learned in here was that as as a musician, let me just bring this in here. Um, I, I I play weddings and things like that, and uh, somebody asked me one time when I was you know, preparing for a wedding that week. They said, "Well, what songs did you choose to play?" And I said, "Yeah, I, I don't. Uh, he who pays the piper calls the tune. All right, I play whatever I'm paid to play. Science really is no different. Um, you know, when if you want to get into the scientific integrity and truthfulness and you know all that stuff, boy, you're getting into some philosophical concepts there that you know you that we'll we'll deal with later the 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 concept of there being an objective truth and that aspect that that can only exist with within a um, uh, at least a deistic understanding of of God. You cannot do that in an atheistic worldview. But one of the things that he brought out in that course, and the course is about 25 hours long, um, was that there were certain times in history where um, Big Bang cosmology um, and certain understandings of science were marginalized by scientists that were at the top of the field because the science that was being looked at and coming up was a threat to their discoveries and would disprove them. So rather than looking to see were they wrong, they looked to silence the opposition um, through more or less a, a type of like political muscle within the scientific realm. And People that want a certain outcome from scientific research, they pay them for that particular outcome. Okay, now maybe there are some scientists out there that, you know, are reputable, but the ones that are true to what they believe are generally the ones that have been filtered through a system to think a certain way that naturally would get the grants to provide evidence for the type of science that they are coming about. And that becomes, I think that that's problematic just in, you know, the, the, uh, search for understanding the way that God created things and the and the way that you know things occurred, but uh, he talks about that in in his lectures. He he mentions it. It's not like a main theme. It's just something that I picked up on that you know he discussed. But um, boy, when he was going through like you know how stars formed and gravity and things like that, it was. I mean, it's it's all wonderful. But he was doing it from the assumption that this. Kalam argument, this syllogism was true, that there was not an infinite regress of moments. Okay. There was only there is only a potential infinite progress of moments. All right. So even within the scientific community that is not being biblical at at all at all at all. That is not being Christian. That is not really seeing science. They, I would say, implicitly agree with this syllogism. So, because of that, um, and I think that it's it's logically and and well understood by everybody, even if you don't have 
this understanding. And I think that that's what makes like movies about and books about time travel, you know, so fascinating to us, the ability to move back and forth, even though that's not a reality. But we know that there is only a certain point that you can go back and you can't go back any further, however far that is. Now, people that have um, proposed like the multiverse thing, either through the um, oscillating universe theory, which is a, a, th- a theory of expansion and contraction, um, that still doesn't solve this problem, this Kalam problem of time. Okay, well, how long has it been expanding and contracting? Let's say that we're, we're in one of the expansions now, and it's going to collapse and expand. How long has it been doing that? Well, you can't say infinitely because there is no potential for that. It would act the universe would actually have to exist within something else that it was expanding and contracting in in order for there to be a sense of time that it was occurring in. Time is generally looked at um, you know through you know understanding of um, I think roughly and, and I'm not a scientist here, so I'm probably going to botch this up. You know, send me emails on it um, through Einstein's theory of relativity. That, you know, energy uh, times uh, energy is equal to mass times the speed of light squared. All of that has presuppositions in it. So, what is energy? Energy is mass. What is mass? It is something that is located, okay? And that that locative thing is multiplied by the speed of light squared, okay? So what you need in order for energy to exist, you need there to be something that is moving, which puts us in this moment aspect, okay? And it's moving at a particular rate and that that is indicated by change moving from one point to another. So logically, energy can only exist within a potential infinite and not within an actual infinite of an oscillating universe or regressive moments. That is a philosophical and logical impossibility for that to occur because um, it is on the basis that something started at a point and is moving forward, not has always been moving, okay? So you can't have something that infinitely collapses and stops moving and then moves again. It's always going in one direction. It's never, we don't, we don't have any evidence that it's going ever going in the opposite direction or ever has. That's one problem with the oscillating multi-universe theory. The um, existence potential of multiverses that uh, we are one that has expanded and is expanded and that we exist and that there are other ones that exist around our universe that expand and do that still doesn't solve your problem you know um people have joked that say that people believe in the in the multiverse theory that there are many earths with like many of us you know just like kind of like the show sliders you know uh, if you remember that show where they would go like to different earths and different things because maybe that there's a universe somewhere where they actually did something that mattered i mean that's kind of the joke that you know goes along with it so what this means is that 
if we hold too scientifically that you know every action has an equal and opposite reaction, that you know thing uh, uh, a um, an object at rest remains in rest unless acted upon, that you don't have a thing set in motion without there being a cause. Okay. And so then this brings us to the next argument that I'm going to hit on for a little bit now and then probably in the next uh, in the next pit. We may talk about it or we might not, you know. But this is the cosmological argument, okay, that goes along with the Kalam. And this states that, um, that there must be an effect for every cause, okay? And that is what we experience and that is what we study. Um, that, that is what we notice. I mean we're doing things right now. I am speaking right now into a microphone. The diaphragm is vibrating. That is being turned into, you know, electrical impulses. It is going to be, you know, uploaded or as you as far as you're concerned, already has been uploaded. It is going into your ear and it is vibrating your eardrum and you are hearing these things. I, right now, it, the sound of my voice, I am physically touching inside of you. Okay, that is exactly what has happened because there is a cause and effect relationship that is going on here. We all experience that. We don't deny that. So the first syllogism for this cosmological argument is that every effect has a cause. The universe is an effect is the second premise. Okay, and since the third premise, we've already established that there cannot be an infinite regress of cause and effects, that the conclusion is there must be an uncaused cause. Okay, uh, basically, it's, it's been stated like this that anything that begins to exist has a cause. That's a better way of saying it and thinking about it. Anything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the conclusion is the universe has a cause. All right. A lot of times it, uh, when, when atheists deal with this uh, argument, and, and I've read it, uh, Daniel Dawkins, uh, or yeah, Daniel Dawkins, I'm, I'm mixing the two. Uh, Richard Dawkins and Daniel Dennett both uh, misrepresented this argument in similar ways, I, I believe. Um, that they said the first premise is anything that exists must have a cause. Anything that begins to exist must have a cause. Or anything that exists must have a cause. They took out begins and they inserted the word must in there. And then they would destroy that argument by saying, well, you say that it's God, so who created God? Because you say that everything that exists must have a cause. And it's like, no, we're not saying that everything that exists must have a cause. We're saying everything that begins to exist must have a cause. Yeah, slurp some coffee here. So that is the difference. When you use that sleight of hand to change the argument, you no longer are dealing with the argument at hand. You've changed it. Um, in, in, in psychology, there is an interesting um, uh, test, sort of, or an interesting story of, of Goodell's incompletion theorem and the universal truth machine. And what this was is that um, 
Professor Grudel creates this universal truth machine that will always give a true output. It would always tell the truth. No matter what question you asked it, it would always tell the truth. So somebody went in and said, I am going to program it with a question that says that you will always say that um, this particular question that I've asked you is false. Okay, but by doing so, you then deny that it is a true statement because I'm telling you to say that it's false. And so whenever you would then ask it, you know, is the new question that was asked, is it true that it was asked? The computer, the machine would say, no, it's false, which is wrong because it was true that it was added in, but it was added in for the response of false. So what happened was they would then say, therefore, it's not a universal truth machine because it doesn't tell the truth. The problem is, is that the programming was changed. Once the programming was changed, it ceased to be what it was. So let's say the universal truth machine was the color yellow. Somebody then inserted blue into it and now it's green. So now you're not asking yellow universal truth machine. You're asking green universal truth machine, which is different, which is separate. Once you've divested something of the attributes that make it what it is, it ceases to be that and become something else. The same is with this, um, this syllogism for the cosmological argument. As soon as you take that first premise of anything that begins to exist as a cause and you change it to anything that exists must have a cause, then you could say, so doesn't that mean that God had a cause, that God existed? That's not what we're saying. Because we are under the impression deductively that God is outside of time and space. I mean, we're not there yet with, you know, with, with our understandings here. This is not an argument for Christianity. This is the argument for a concept of godness in the beginning. Now, the Christian God fits into this mold. And you could say, well, other gods do too, and that's fair enough. You know, that's, that's fine. But that is not what we are uh, discussing at this moment. We need to get past this understanding first. And if we said that, you know, any God that is considered um, uh, tangible is disqualified from godness. Okay, well then, you know, that knocks out like Gaia, like Mother Earth, okay? That that would be, you know, an example of this where there are lots of other gods that are not seen as, you know, tangible, physical gods that would be in there. Christianity is one of those, okay? But we've already knocked out the one god. With this argument, we've knocked out quite a few concepts of gods. Uh, For example, what we're saying here is that this god necessarily has to be outside of time and space in order for him to be infinitely eternal and actually eternal. Okay, He can't be within time and space, within our universe, and be an actual infinite. 
so necessarily through deduction, we would say, okay, what other gods fit this, you know, this this concept? Flying spaghetti monster is knocked out. Flying spaghetti monster, number one, he's flying, which means he is within time and space. Um, he's also made up of parts because pasta is is made up of things and he's spaghetti so he's he's different things that have come together to, to form together so he is not um immutable which means beyond the ability to change and because he is not beyond the ability to change he is in fact changing and if something is changing then they are not um actually infinite possibly they could be potentially infinite but they fail that test and so think about the other gods, um, Greek mythology, and those sort of things. So now, just by these two arguments, we've knocked down you know, uh, some of the other gods and talked about what an attribute is that makes a god a god. Thank you for listening to The Theology Pit. Check us out on Facebook, The Theology Pit. Um, you can go to samsonsick.com and check this out. And now it is definitely time to close down the pit. Thank you. Everyone, thanks for listening to the Theology Pit. Do us a favor and check out our website at samsonstick.com. Tell us what you like or what you don't like and consider making a donation. Just send a buck to show your appreciation. It's more than just money. To us, it's an encouragement. samsonstick.com. 